their pocket and get their coins. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Talks Now. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. That was Dr. Sarah Lynn Williams, medical toxicologist and faculty at Vanderbilt. And some of you might be able to guess what she's referring to. Others will have to listen to find out. Today's episode brings us another in our Fem Talk series from Dr. Jenny Buchanan. Stay tuned for some insights into how Dr. Williams got into medical toxicology and some incredible cases on this episode of Talks Now. I have to say my favorite part of the upcoming interview is when Dr. Williams throws down with some of her colleagues and says, prove it. like to welcome everyone to uh, Fem Talks. We are super delighted to have Dr. Sarah Lynn Williams with us today. Um, she really is uh, truly one of my personal favorites. You know, that sort of attending that when you were a med school, you just grew up and, and wanted to be. She's a really amazing lady and I'm super excited to be able to talk to you today, Sarah Lynn or Dr. Williams. Um, so uh, I was reading your Vandy uh, bio, and they Uh-oh. said uh, persistent enthusiasm about anything talks, <laughs> and I and I definitely felt that way as a medical student. Um, so uh, we would love uh, Matt and I would love for you to uh, 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 tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm originally from North Carolina, so I'm a Carolina girl, and I went to. College in South Carolina, I went to medical school at the other blue. So my daughter's a freshman at Chapel Hill, and I went to the other school that's the dark blue for medical school, but she still forgives me for it. And she still claims me to remain unnamed. (laughs) To remain (laughs) unnamed. And at that time, a lot of your emergency medicine programs were still two, three, four programs. And so I did my internship actually at her school at Chapel Hill and UC San Diego. I was in the second class at UC San Diego. And this was a really big deal for me to go to the West Coast. But at that time, there weren't as many of the programs in the Southeast. And I remember when I made the decision to go into emergency medicine, which was sort of like discouraged at that time. And they said, well, you either have to go West or go North. And well, you know, I'm a Southerner, so I wasn't going North. So I went West and interviewed in Denver and interviewed in San Diego and a few other little places. And those were the only two places that I ranked and ended up uh, luckily being in San Diego, which was uh, fortuitous in the second uh, class. And at the same time, when I came in as a resident, as a you know, second year resident, they had just hired Rick Clark, who was just coming out of his fellowship to be the uh, medical director for the Poison Center there and also for uh, being their sort of token toxicologist at the time. And so emergency medicine uh, in San Diego is obviously a great sport. You get to meet a lot of great people. Uh, But the toxicology piece didn't really come along until later when my fourth year, that's when we did our tox rotation. And here we are trying to all figure out where we're going to go in life. And a lot of my colleagues wanted to do more community-based medicine. And I I figured out very early on, I wanted to stay in academics. Uh, Worked with Rick. And I remember standing and I think we were standing in line at the cafeteria there at UC San Diego. And I just looked at him and said, do you know, have you ever thought about having a fellowship? And really? His, yeah. I didn't know that. And he, because at the time, remember, there was no ACGME accreditation for fellowships. Uh, we had a PharmD fellow um, 
that they, Tony Maniguera had a PharmD fellowship at UC San Diego, but there was no MD fellowship because obviously Rick just got there two years before. And his, he was like, wow, okay. And so at that time, it was just a matter of figuring out how I was going to pay for myself uh, so that I could be a quote fellow. Because um, essentially it was, you know, fellowship on your time while you were doing your part-time work to pay for your your salary, which is how it worked back mm-hmm. then. Um, and so I was the first fellow there and essentially worked essentially as a semi-attending because there really were no rules or guidelines at the time. And the rest is kind of history. So, so would you say that you are the muse, that you are the inspiration for the San Diego Talks Fellowship? <laughs> I don't know if Rick would say yes. that. <laughs> I think I was the one that said, hmm. Uh, he obviously had to do the work to put it together and get the then new chairman to approve it. But yeah, that's how it all started. Yeah, he did a lot of work. But it, it was like, like it one was of those really moments. You. Yeah. <laughs> I was the moment. It, it's just one of those, it was one of those moments in time where you realize it changed everything. And it was just, do I say it? Do I not say it? And it just, I said it and it just changed the course of my career. And um, uh, just, just follow wow. that up. You had, I mean, I don't think it was the, the cafeteria food that, that caused the inspiration. What um, was the, wh- yeah. What were you going to do? If you weren't going to do talks, what were you going to do? Wait, Matt, you didn't, you never eaten the UC San Diego cafeteria. Oh, okay. was, I'm from Colorado. Were there edibles? Was that was going on? It was the edible day. But uh, what? No, no. The only thing that was good about the cafeteria there is at that time you got these little tickets when you were a resident. And if you got in the right line, they wouldn't count off as much money as you need to. You got more food (laughs) or they wouldn't kind of weigh your salads. (laughs) And there was one guy that made the best in the world. Dr. Williams, do you have a, you know, a great case or, um, you know, a great memory of uh, a really great educational pearl that has to do with med talks that are drop some knowledge on us. There are always great cases. It's uh, I think the ones that are most satisfying are the ones where you go in and you don't know that they're talks. And then it turns out to be a Mm -hmm. toxicology case. Uh, I was asked to see one patient. uh, This is actually after I was here at Vanderbilt. And it was one of those, you know, curbsides. Hey, Sarilyn, uh, what do you think about this? You know, <laughs> well, I don't know. Can I see the patient? And there's this young woman who'd been admitted to the hospital because um, she was having these runs of VTAC. And they actually were bringing her in to put an, an implantable loop recorder in her to help sort of record these episodes of VTAC. But, you know, the curbside doctor is like, you know, I'm just not convinced she's having VTAC. I just don't quite get it. I don't understand it. Um, so she shows up in the clinic and they're getting ready to you know, put this loop recorder in. And sure enough, she's in VTAC. So they wow. admit her to the hospital and they're like, well, you know, I guess we got that wrong. But he calls me. He's like, I just, you know, something's not right. I just, you know, can you just kind of look at her? So I went to was the, it the cardiologist who called you or cardiologist who called and it's just someone that I knew or who knew me well. And then he just had that, you know, that the usual something's not right. Something doesn't fit, but she was having runs of VTAC. Got her on the monitor. She was having runs of VTAC and I went to go see her and she wouldn't talk to me. And I was like, Hmm, that's always clue number one. And I noticed that, you know, she was a little <laughs> tremulous and she was a little shaking. And then she they said, yeah, she's kept having all this vomiting. We just don't understand why she's having all this vomiting. So they're doing this big workup and doing all these CAT scans of her head, her belly and everywhere else and trying to figure out what's going on. And she was a little, 
uh, hypokalemic at the time. And I said, well, that's really sort of interesting. And I noticed she had a wide pulse pressure. And I said, huh. Mm. Now, just pausing for a moment, because I know some of you are thinking VTAC, nausea and vomiting, hypokalemia, and you're currently shouting the answer or punching the shoulder of the person next to you. And others aren't quite sure. But the answer is coming in three, two, one. I said, you know, if I didn't know any better, I said, I would say this woman had theophylline poisoning. If they're like <laughs> looking at me like, well, she has no access to theophylline. Nobody prescribes theophylline anymore. And I said, well, yeah, you're right. So let's send a level. I <laughs> know, <laughs> 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 prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Well, it came back at, you know, like eight milligrams per deciliter, which is, you know, like below therapeutic range, but it should be zero. So I remember calling the analytical toxicologist at Vanderbilt, who was a really cool lady. And I said, you know, I got this lady here and I ordered this theophylline level and there's something that was measured. I said, can you go back and look at the urine again and just see if there are any other peaks like caffeine or something else? Because they don't report that. And so she did. And she's like, oh, there's loads of caffeine. So what? it turned out huh. this was a Munchausen case. This lady had <sighs> been pretending to have VTAC by taking the little um, recording device and putting it into Neat. like one of those machines like you use to teach medics about what VTAC looks like and recording it into the Holter monitor. I mean, she was very, I mean, it was amazing what she was doing. Uh, and that's how she wow. got the, quote, the, the rhythms of VTAC into her Holter monitor. And then when she was showing up to get this implantable, she knew that they were going to figure out that she wasn't really having VTAC. So she took these mega doses of these caffeine loaded diet pills to induce dysrhythmias, uh, and she was actually having ventricular tachycardia as a result. Uh, so she ended up um, going to psychiatry when she was done, and of course they were like, "Well, she's How not so approach though with it." Well, I kept asking her, "Oh, just let me know. You know, did you take any diet pills, any herbals?" And I always go down the herbal supplements, natural, you know, kind of things. <laughs> uh, and she finally is like, "Well, I've been taking some natural products, etc." And it wasn't until the psychiatrist was able to get the history that she was intentionally abusing the uh, the diet pills with the caffeine for this purpose. And actually, it turned out that she had been. Um, had done other things prior to admitting to our hospital with this episode uh, where she was getting the vocal cord the vocal cord spasm where she pretended like she was having an allergic reaction and mm -hmm. she had been intubated several times at other hospitals. So this wasn't her first rodeo. This was just her first tox yeah. rodeo. Wow. Did she, did she like read about it online or? That's she did. Really she was able, yeah, she was very strategic and figuring this all out. She's very intelligent. And actually it turned out that she had, had gone through EMT school and had sort of learned about some of these things. So she was a typical kind of a little bit of knowledge, but not too much. Um, so like the nurses and other folks should tend to be high risk sometimes and figure this out. And that's what she did. It was just a really cool case because it was one of those curbsides, you know, always beware of the curbsides. Um, and I mm -hmm. never let me go and see her. And it's just how she fit a pattern because I couldn't get any really good information from her. And even though it didn't fit the pattern, it's just extrapolating from that pattern. Okay, what else could this be that would give us a measurable theophylline level? Well, if you take enough caffeine, you might you know, have a metabolic pathway to measure enough theophylline. Um, to have a measurable level in the lab, and she did. But it was just a really 
kind of a cool case. Looking at the hole is so important. That's why you're such an awesome educator. Well, that's one of the things I think has been one of my strategies is try to use a lot more case-based learning of helping people to think. And in this day and age, everyone can look everything up. Now, you can look up how to calculate an anti-gap, but what does it mean? How do you use it? When do you use it? And if you find it's positive, what does that mean? It doesn't always mean it's a toxic alcohol. Mm-hmm. Even though that's how people are taught. And with so much information available on the internet now, uh, with some fabulous websites, I always tell people that's where you should get started, but it shouldn't be where you end. So you start with mud piles, you shouldn't end with mud piles. Mud piles just gets you started to thinking about what this could be, but you shouldn't just end with it and then shut down your thinking and do some premature anchoring. Just a quick reminder, TalksNow is found online at TalksNow.org and on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure to give us a review in the iTunes store, as that's how many people find us. Well, that's where you should get started, but it shouldn't be where you end. So you start with mud piles, you shouldn't end with mud piles. Mud piles just gets you started to thinking about what this could be, but you shouldn't just end with it and then shut down your thinking and do some premature anchoring. So is there a talks history question or a, 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 a trick or something to history taking that you find useful that uh, the residents appreciate? Hmm. I always like to ask people if they say that they took a bunch of pills, what they took it with, whether it be water or alcohol or something. I ask them if they counted them. Because, you know, they say, I took all the bottle. Well, how many were there? Or if you counted them or how many, or did you take it by the handfuls? And how many handfuls did it take? (laughs) Because invariably, yeah, for me, it's, was the sun out or was it dark? Yes. Well, in the old days, it used (laughs) to be what, I used to ask them what TV program was on, you know, especially like for CDFN when I was trying to time when they actually took it and they couldn't tell me. Mm -hmm. And now you can't do that anymore because you can stream anything anytime. And so now so it's true. the time of day. Did you eat dinner? <laughs> Did you not? Did you text your friend? And so now with the texting, it's that's usually our time. Is you know, when did you mm-hmm. send the text to your friend to tell her that you did this? T.O.T. Yeah, time of text. Yeah. Yes, time of text. It is. <laughs> Especially for the teenagers. Do you have another case, Sarah? Oh, interesting case. <sighs> well, the funny story is that there's another we had in uh, San Diego – uh, one time we had a, a group of people who were uh, working in the holes of one of the big Navy ships and one went down and then another went down and then somebody went down to go rescue them and they went down and then somebody else kind of figured out something was wrong and got sick, but got rescued and they were bringing them to the emergency department. And, you know, for those of us that think of knockdown gases, obviously we're thinking about hydrogen sulfide. And so I get this uh, phone call and they're like, hey, Sarah, we got this, this guy and this is what happened and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, well, it sounds like, you know, hydrogen sulfide. Okay, this is great. What's the antidote? I said, no, 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 no. The first thing you do is you reach in their pocket and get their coins. It's like, huh? <laughs> what? Reach in their pocket and get their coins. And he's, he's like, what is that going to do? That'll make the diagnosis. What do you mean that'll make the diagnosis? Well, look at their coins and see, you know, are, you know, are they kind of brown or, you know, they've... Uh, been colorized in any way. And then you'll know that they were exposed to hydrogen sulfide. And sure enough, one of the dudes, he had wrapped his coins with masking tape and around the edges of the coins, you could see where it was oxidized. And so we had the diagnosis just by looking at the coins. And then the the two who survived actually survived and, and left the hospital after being supported for a while. But it was just kind of a cool case of 
how to make the diagnosis with an alternative point of view without the history and physical, but looking for some other stigmata of the exposure. Um, we actually have the pictures of those pennies. We call them the uh, hydrogen sulfide pennies. It's kind of cool. Oh, it's really cool. What did they, did they figure out, Sarah, what, um, what caused it? Well, it turned out they were cleaning the hole and they were supposed to all wear their little monitors and they weren't. And it was one of the places that, um, they obviously had sewage at some point in time. And so they weren't monitoring the air environment, um, like they were supposed to. And then the guys went down. But the residents were like all laughing at me because, you know, instead of coming in saying, here's how we're going to save the patient, I want them to get the coins. <laughs> Where are the coins? Where are the coins? I got to see the coins. <laughs> the patient's going to do fine. If he lived to get to the emergency department, he'll be fine. We just need to, you yeah. know, this is the cool part. Well, <laughs> and we care about the patients, but the reality is you wouldn't do it if you didn't find the disease kind of cool. Dr. Williams, any, any words of wisdom, um, especially for the ladies and, and anyone who wants to do toxicology really in general, but a mantra or. I think for all women in medicine, it's certainly been a longer road to get accepted and get validated. And you almost have to, as I always say, you have to prove yourself every time. And even we've made so much progress, but even with having more women in medicine, but even today, I find like even as a toxicologist, um, people tend to question you a lot more. They tend to, you have to prove yourself. You have to prove your knowledge. You have to prove that you know your stuff. Um, as I always say, you have to kind of kick the can a little bit and show that you are valid in your knowledge and being able to make these recommendations. Mm -hmm. I had a story once where this is when I was first came to um, Vanderbilt and we had this uh, horrific snake bite case and this little kid, and he clearly uh, was doing very poorly. You didn't need any laboratories to figure this out. And I walked in, saw the patient, walked out and I said, okay, let's start at the antivenin. And the ED started the antivenin, started putting the orders in for the antivenin. And I said, okay, he's going to need to go in the intensive care unit. Like, oh, we don't have any labs back. I said, we don't need labs. The kid is doing very poorly. We need to start the antivenin and just, you know, here, I'll talk to the pharmacist and get everything ready. So then I said, you know, I tell you what, I'll call the intensive care unit and just let them know this kid is coming and here's the plan. So I called the, the fellow and I said, here, you know, we've got this kid down here with a pretty bad rattlesnake envenomation. Here's the, da, 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 and I'm starting the antivenin and we've sent off the labs, but the labs aren't back yet, which usually means they're abnormal, which means he's probably in a DIC like syndrome and et cetera. And there was this pause. He's like, well, what do you know about snake bites? <laughs> Was like looked at him and I like, wrote the papers. Um, well, I'm the medical toxicologist, <laughs> you know. And he's like, "What do you mean you're the medical toxicologist?" I said, "Well, you know, medical toxicology is a specialty for overdoses, envenomations, you know, toxic effects of drugs and herbals and et cetera." And you know, et cetera. And he's just like, "Yeah, but what do you know about snake bites?" I said, "Well, I tell you what." Google my name and I'll meet you in the unit and we'll talk about this case. <laughs> That's awesome. Google me. Did he do because it? He did. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> because we had been, UC San Diego had been one of the sites that we had uh, done the original work for the fab fragments. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was a part of that. I was, you know, very fortunate to be there with Rick and be a part of that. And he, and so, obviously, I knew more about fab fragments than he did, and far clearly a whole lot more about uh, envenomations than he did. Um, but it was just that 
that sense of once again having to prove yourself. Whereas, you know, I even with some of the residents one time, I've even asked, I said, would you have said that to my comparable male attending of the same age? And they kind of look at you and they're like, Mm -hmm. well, no. Then why would you feel it appropriate to say it to me? And there's always this pause. (laughs) They kind of look at you. Um, It's like, you know, I'm your friend. I'm here to help you to take care of the patients, to learn to be better physicians and, you know, just be your resource, be your coach, be your mentor. Um, But I also would like to feel the same kind of respect as you give to the male attendings as well. And I think that's one of the things we're all going to continue to struggle with. Mm -hmm. I agree. Anything else that you want to add? I think toxicology is a great sport. It's a wonderful way to kind of uh, balance your scientific curiosity and be able to do kind of bedside medicine per se. Um, But as with all specialties in medicine, you've got to still find that balance, especially as a woman. Uh, Finding what is that, that point where you're able to do what you want to in your career and then balance the needs of family if family is something that you're oriented to do. Yeah. And I think that's still one of the hard things for all of us to find. Tox gives you sometimes a little more leeway for that balance, uh, especially if you have some opportunities to do more call or be with the poison center, et cetera, where you're not having to do as many clinical shifts. Um, but it's still, it doesn't matter what field you're in, it's finding that balance that where you feel that you're doing the career that you want to. Well, That closes out a great interview. Huge thanks to Drs. Buchanan and Williams. We've gotten some great feedback on Dr. Jenny Buchanan's Fem Talk series and hope to do more soon. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Talks Now is produced with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology 